Hello and welcome to the Political Notebook Podcast. I'm Billy Robb. I'm a high school teacher. And I'm Robert Robb, a columnist for the Arizona Republic. And uh, we're going to reverse things, um, mix things up this mm-hmm. time. Uh, usually Billy is peppering me with questions about uh, the topics of the day, including his uh, stump the dad questions at the very end of the podcast. Um, But this time I uh, want to explore a phenomenon um, that is dominating our culture, dominating our politics, social media. And Billy uh, has written extensively um, about social media um, on his uh, blog, billyrob.com. And you have some qualms about the effects of social media, both on healthy living for individuals and on our politics. Uh, And I want to begin by exploring those qualms um, with respect to healthy living, the effects on individuals. What are some of your concerns and qualms? Yeah, I I think I'm in a privileged, somewhat privileged position being the age I am. Uh, I'm the I'm the last generation to grow up without social media. So I was, uh, I'm 33. So when I was growing up, didn't have social media. First got a flip phone when I was a junior in high school. Facebook first came out in 2004 when I was a freshman in college. So I, I, I was an adult, kind of, when this social media phenomenon started. And I always had a hesitation about it uh, when Facebook first came out. I thought it was weird. thought sending messages to people that normally you would send privately, having that public, I thought that was weird. And as it uh, continued, um, I just always had a personal qualm about it. I've deleted Facebook several times uh, and, and, and come back. Uh, I didn't have a smartphone when it was first coming out for for a long time. So was that because your parents were cheap and <laughs> wouldn't purchase one for you? <laughs> no. Uh, but um, I've always had a personal reservation about it. I think that's 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 caused me to be suspicious uh, about watching it grow, and I've always had uh, my personal reservations and qualms about it. Now, increasingly, it seems like there's um, social research uh, that indicates that there are consequences, particularly for young people, um, by having their interactions uh, being principally virtual uh, rather than real. There's a lot of mixed. There's there's mixed research about it. There's there's nothing that's been definitive in terms of cause and effect relationships between things like depression or social anxiety or, or loneliness. We don't know, for example, we know that using Facebook more uh, is correlated with higher levels of depression and in young people, but we don't know whether that's a a cause and effect relationship. Um, There has been uh, research that shows that, uh, young people are taking less risks, um, that they're getting less sleep, and and lots of different effects uh, that I would see as negative. Uh, anecdotally, I see it every day as a teacher, 
uh, and I get the impression that it's unhealthy. Uh, I think, you know, you see it out and about when you're just at a coffee shop or restaurant, everyone looking into their cell phones instead of talking to each other. But uh, for young people, you know, it's, it's a situation where at every waking moment, everyone's looking into their phone, clicking on something rather than, than interacting. So there has been some research that shows there, there could possibly be pointers that it is damaging psychologically uh, in different ways. Um, and a lot of communities and uh, social uh, researchers are cautioning parents and schools to, to hold off on that. I'm a social media Neanderthal. I, I am on uh, Facebook and t- Twitter because the Arizona Republic requires me to be, uh, and I use them almost exclusively uh, just to post links um, to the stuff uh, that I write. I do use Twitter um, to uh, follow reporters and public figures who seem to tweet more substantively than just silly stuff, but I'm only following maybe 70 people on, on even mm-hmm. at Twitter. I, I have no friends on Facebook. I've got 900 plus mm-hmm. followers, <laughs> but no friends. And I, so I don't use it for social communication at all. I understand um, its attraction uh, as a way of keeping in touch with people. Um, it's something that uh, I see people who know much more about friends and relatives than I possibly uh, could know. And so it's a good way to keep in touch. It's a good way to communicate. Here's what I don't understand, and that is the compulsiveness in it. Uh, I don't understand why there's not a discipline uh, where you use it for its value, uh, but you spend a certain amount of time on it, and then you move on to other things. It just seems like people get um, absorbed uh, by yeah. the media. Can it, any insights as to what is so compulsive about it? I think part, I think there's two elements of it. One is the compulsiveness of socializing that it allows where you can always see what other people are doing, which is interesting. And you can always share what you're doing or thinking, which is always interesting. You have a, you have a potential audience 24-7 that you can, that you can broadcast and, and get a response. I can put something out there and get a response. And I, I, someone's always posting something interesting. It, I guess I have a strong sense of privacy and a desire for privacy. Um, I, I want an audience for what I write. Um, I don't want an audience for the stuff that I, I do. Um, so I have a hard time relating uh, to a desire to learn these details about other people's life and a compulsion to share those kind of details about one's life. So, so that's I think it's one element that people like. People like to do that. If you're not saying anything, if you don't have an audience, what does that mean? You, you're not there, and you're not visible. You're not, I think, tailoring your your image in other people's minds and and and, and interacting. I think that's 
I, but what people does, like it. But the other, the other element that creates the compulsion is that it's by design. The the, pla- right. the platforms are specifically designed to create compulsion with the like button, the share button, with the algorithms, uh, with the blinking lights. Everything is designed to increase engagement. So, so if you think about it that way, it's almost like a uh, you know the reinforcement mechanism is almost in like a you know BF Skinner device where there's there's uh it's the reinforcement mechanisms are designed to to create compulsive checking so they can sell ads but what what does it say about where we all are culturally um that there's not the development within particularly young people although i've seen the compulsion at all ages um, including my advanced age uh, among friends and relatives um, but what does it say culturally that we're not developing a sense of self-worth that's independent of that constant interaction and the need to have an audience for fairly monta- mundane activities in life? I think that's the role of parents and, and educators because I think that is very, very important. And if you if you sit down with teenagers like I do every day and 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 talk to them about whether they're enjoying being compulsively checking their phones or whether they're enjoying whatever they're doing I think they would say no I think there's a there's a longing for for a time and an experience they don't even know about which is what I experienced growing up which is you know go go ride your bike out to the to the park or go somewhere and, and meet some friends and, and hang out and do something and, and go home and, and you meet up and, and, and plan something. I think, I think there's a, there's a conscious recognition that they are not experiencing that, that they kind of long for, but there's no, there's really no escaping it because it's there. <laughs> it's, uh, they're immersed in it. And if there's no if you don't learn to develop that, I, I think it's something valuable that you're recognizing. But I think that just gets that gets lost. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I the internet. I mean, I, I go on the internet a lot, um, but um, I go on it when I choose to go on it to do something specific that I want to do. It's not just something that I do to pass the time. Yeah. There's other things that I do to pass the time. Do do, do you see a, you you say that the kids recognize um, that this may not be entirely healthy or satisfying. Do you think that organically we will develop over time a more healthy relationship with social media where we take advantage of um, its superior opportunities to stay in touch uh, without getting absorbed and subsumed um, by the mechanism, or do you see paths towards a more healthy relationship? I think recognizing the trade-offs are important. I don't think it would happen organically um, just because 
the technology is there. I mean, nothing, nothing, I guess nothing happens organically. I think we'd have to intentionally as a society start doing things differently. I, I think podcasts are something that's, that's outside of that. That's growing more popular that, you know, it's not, it's not a, it's not a quick thing. People sit there and listen for to, to long conversations. So I think things like that emerge um, but, um, I don't know if it's going to naturally happen, um, as, you know, as Facebook and Twitter, it's still very new, you know, within the last 10 years, things have exploded. So I think it is possible that collectively we will start to recognize that this is not healthy. And then maybe in a hundred years, look back and like, man, wasn't that a crazy time? Everyone was just totally absorbed in their devices. Um, but I think we'd have to recognize that together and make an intentional decisions within families, within schools, within social norms, you know, it's, you know, social norm. If I'm, if I'm having dinner with someone, you know, it, it should be a social norm that you don't look at your phone all the time or when you're even within someone else's presence, you know, socially that you're not mentally going somewhere else by interacting with other people that are at a different social gathering, all looking at their phones at what each other are doing. But how how do we get from where we are? Because you see the opposite all the time. People, Mm -hmm. people (laughs) spending their time in each other's presence, interacting with other people who are not in their presence. How do we get from where we are to there and and let's let's assume you got a student that that mm-hmm. you finally get to look up from his or her phone. Mm-hmm. What would you tell him or her about how to use social media healthily uh, and how to develop more of a sense of detachment and make it a utility, not a way of life? And I don't know, I don't know how to do it healthily myself. That's one thing I've struggled with. That's that's one reason that's that's a, that's conflicted for me. Is I I think about this stuff all the time. I have been since I was. 18 years old and I have not found a way to balance it out. If it's, if it's an app there on my phone, it's hard not to in every dull moment, open it up, see what's going on. And then, you know, next thing you know, I'm absorbed in something pat, you know, it's, and it's, it's a passive thing because I'm just opening something up and seeing what's coming at me. Um, and, and my attention is diverted in whatever direction someone, whatever direction I happen to see. Um, so rather than taking the time to daydream or think or imagine or wonder, uh, <clears throat> those, the, all those moments are, are taken up. So I, I don't know what I would say to a student uh, in that direction uh, other than to try out not having, I give my students a 48-hour challenge over spring break to go, I challenge them to see if they can go 40 hours without looking at their screens and then write about it. We'll see if, so we'll see old- if that happens. But just getting a taste of it and, and I think also creating spaces to have interactions and connections with people that aren't mediated through that. So email lists, po- I think podcasts are, are a good way to connect with people to, to know that I'm not missing out on what everyone else is doing, but I don't have to be compulsively 
checking in on these so platforms you, every day. You don't think the old codger approach of saying, put down your damn phone will work? It can, <laughs> and, and, I, and a lot of schools do. Looking at, look at different schools, some, some schools try to say no tolerance whatsoever policy. Um, I think if, you know, I, I think up to a point it would be healthy to have it outlawed for, for, for kids uh, to say you're not allowed to have your own personal device until 15, 16, 17 years old. Um, so you learn how to develop without it. I mean, high school and, and those kind of times are so socially self-conscious for kids anyways. I can't imagine going through that socially fraught environment and then also having to manage an online image as well where, you know, you say one wrong thing and you get roasted on social media or, I mean, it's, I'm very, very grateful that I'm not growing up having to navigate these, these things and then having something happen is there for the rest of your life. So if, if something happens online, there's, there's no going away. It's attached to your name. People can Google it. I mean, Let's let's move to politics. You also have qualms about the effect that social media is having on our political discourse and our system of governments governance uh, generally. Yeah, I think just to start, I think it is uh, <clears throat> a fallacy to think that social media enables or techno new technology enables different movements or social movements that are going on. I mean, there has been revolutions, uh, social movements forever before social media came out. The American Revolution, you know, there was no social media that enabled groups to organize for what they wanted and to get their messages across. Now, it's true that that's the medium of the day. People are using the technology, the medium of the day. Um, but I think to say that um, I think there's, I think in the, um, um, in the Egypt Springs, uh, the Arab Spring, I think that was the first sort of social revolution where Twitter was a, was a major part. And I think people started at that point, they started talking about, oh, this is a, this is a medium that can allow for all this social, social change. Um, but I don't, you know, I don't think there was ever a problem with the old technologies allowing for communication organization. Um, and I think it can create more problems than it, than it solves. Uh, in, in your most recent um, post, you, you talk about how uh, Twitter creates sort of a false sense mm -hmm. of what public opinion is. Yeah. Well, I mean, only 25, around 25% of American adults use Twitter. So all of a sudden, already, it's it's a very limited, there's probably a self-selecting group that goes on there. Um, but, the you know, the people that are very loud, that are shaping the conversation, aren't necessarily representative of, of the, the electorate. Uh, you know, Howard Schultz was on, you know, is on Twitter, and he, get, he gets made fun of for what he calls being ratioed which means you have thousands more replies to a tweet than you do retweets or likes. So it's, it's an automatic social gauge of legitimacy or making a good point of the ratios that you're getting on your things. And so, and so he's, 
And so there's automatically a perception that like, oh, and then I think journalists and other people, they have, they know that, hey, if I say this, you know, it's going to get roasted by certain progressive groups on Twitter. So it's, it's a, it's, it, there's a self-censoring mechanism going on because you know what the, you know, what the mob is going to do uh, in a certain, in a certain scenario. Uh, and, and I also think that, um, you know, the, the loudest voices aren't, aren't necessarily representative of, of what people truly think, whether it's on the progressive side um, or whether it's on the, you know, the Trump yeah, I'm, side. I'm, I'm seeing almost the opposite um, reaction, uh, that, that as, as we measure our success uh, by the number of social media hits that we get, um, I see what are supposed to be the um, quasi-neutral uh, gatekeepers becoming more snarky. Abs- yeah, absolutely. Uh, in order, in order to get more interest on on social media, I mean, the, the platform rewards snark and uh, uh, dunking on people, insulting people. That's what gets rewarded. You talk about you know, going back to the reinforcement mechanism. You say a very measured, uh, thoughtful perspective. You know that's that's not gonna that's not gonna blow up. That's not gonna that's not gonna get you more attention, more more hits. And uh, you know you, I think there's everyone's everyone kind of already aware of the bubble or, or silo mechanism where like-minded people are are living and and, and spreading messages in there. Um, but I think you, you're very aware of sort of the reactions that you're going to get when you send a post so that, uh, you know, an objective journalist has an incentive or just a psychological reward for sending it in that different way and, and seeing those groups pick up on it and go with it. As we've discussed in previous podcasts, um, American political discourse has always been um, – full of hyperbole, uh, demagoguery, uh, trying to create straw men, uh, demonization of opponents. Um, so um, Twitter and Facebook didn't invent those things. Right. I, but what is the um, consequences of social media making that open to a wider audience, uh, making the distribution of it more instantaneously, in instantaneous, um, making the impact broader. Are you seeing something happening in outcomes? Well, I that's think it's attributable to to that. I think it's automatically more shallow because it's there's so much of it all around. You look at it for fractions of a second before moving on to the next thing. Um, <clears throat> people are engaging in it very often so that, you know, you're talking about uh, Thomas Jefferson or, or Alexander Hamilton writing screens against each other. I mean, you're, <laughs> those are, those are much longer, well thought out, constructed, you know, even though they're the same tone maybe, but it's, but it's, uh, it's, it's not so super superficial and, and shallow. <laughs> um, so I think I think it's it's a dumbing down and 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 um, 
more more surface level uh, pokes at someone, and then and then just the you know the the other dumbing down or, or shallowness effect is that the the time it takes to, to do it, so that every minute you're spending, every hour you're spending, or how many you know multiple hours you're spending on that a week are hours that you're not reading uh, something you know reading a book reading. Now, thinking about things for longer time periods. Once again, I, I see potentially enormous value uh, from um, social media. Uh, it allows um, politicians to communicate directly uh, to voters and constituents without going through the filter of um, the media. Uh, it allows uh, greater interaction uh, between those who govern and those who are governed. Uh, it provides broader participation uh, in the uh, public debate and dialogue. Uh, again, is there a way to develop a more healthy relationship um, with the social media where you can gain those advantages uh, without having them overwhelmed uh, by the corrosive effect of what's necessary to gain attention in social media. Yeah, and and definitely don't mean to totally um, reject any value that, that these platforms have. It is an equalizing mechanism where my tweets are next to, you know, President Trump's tweets potentially on someone's timeline, or you know, it's it's uh, anyone can send a message and, and and get seen by others. There's there's no filter. Um, there's it, there's ways to organize in, in in easier ways, and even though it's not unpo- you know, I said earlier that it's not doesn't allow organization, but it does allow, you know, Facebook groups, for example, allows people, you know, to communicate that might not otherwise um, know that other people exist or have like-minded thoughts. Um, how do you how do you create a healthier platform for it? I think maybe new platforms come around that that advertise specifically for that. I mean, we I think that the designs of a Facebook and Twitter are inherently because they're free and they rely on ads and they're collecting everyone's data and, and, and enticing everyone to use more of them. Maybe there'll be a demand or a desire for a kind of platform that's toned down and has a different feel. Maybe they're going that way uh, anyways. There, there, there are some people trying to organize mm-hmm. um, such forums and, and um, opportunities uh-huh. to engage. Let, let's peer... 10 years into the future, um, will we have developed, will our relationship with social media, both individually and collectively um, through our political engagement, mature um, where we do develop a a greater sense of detachment, a more responsible use of it? Or do you think we're headed in the opposite direction and this is going to be kind of a race to the bottom? I think we're not out of going to the bottom, but I do think it will. I think I do think it will turn. I do think it will turn back. 
I, th- I don't think that we've reached the low point yet. And, w- and with all this, I mean, just with the political situation coming up in 2020, um, with all the incentives, I think it'll create, you know, leadership and examples of healthy engagement. Um, but I, I do think that eventually as we mature and more social research comes out, more psychological research comes out and that schools and parents start uh, buying into that, that, you know, the importance of it. I mean, just like uh, I was the first generation to grow up without it, uh, we'll also be um, coming up soon on the first generation to be born with it, having their own kids and, and deciding intentionally how to do that. Some of the, <clears throat> I think it's ironic that a lot of the places where, this stuff was invented like Silicon Valley, you know, a lot of these people are sending their kids to low tech schools where they're not even allowed to in- engage with it. Um, whereas you see in a lot of low income schools in the inner cities, they're, you know, they're being pushed on it more. Um, so I think over time, as we get more perspective, as we live with it, um, I hope that we'll figure out how, how to balance that out and create healthier social spheres. Well, thank you very much for listening to the political podcast, the political notebook <laughs> podcast. Um, Billy assures me that um, the podcast is available on all podcast platforms. I have to take his word for it because I don't know what they are. <laughs> thank you. <laughs>